Welcome to episode four of Economic Supply on Demand, a podcast brought to you by the Economic Society of Australia to discuss economic affairs of the time. I'm Erin Stone and I'm the president of the Western Australia branch. In this episode, we bring you a recording of our recent When With Wine webinar event, where we heard from the Honourable Simone McGurk, MLA, about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on women including employment and the production of goods. I'd like to welcome everybody. Good afternoon all, and thank you all so much for joining us for our inaugural When With Wine, which is an initiative of the Women in Economics Network of Western Australia, or WEN, WA, which is a subcommittee of the Economic Society of Australia. My name is Sally McMahon, and I'm the chair of the Women in Economics Network in South Australia. Our When With Wine topic for today is the impacts of the pandemic on women, including employment and production of goods. Our When With Wine event has been designed to substitute for our usual Policy in the Pub series, an informal bi-monthly event providing an opportunity to participate in discussion about topical economic issues and is undertaken in partnership with the Economic Society of Australia. Our topic today is impacts of the pandemic on women, including employment and production of goods, And I'm very pleased to be welcoming our guest presenter, the Honourable Simone McGurk, MLA, Minister for Child Protection, Women's Interests, Prevention of Family and Domestic Violence and Community Services. Welcome, Minister. Elected to the seat of Fremantle in 2013, Minister McGurk was recognised for her extensive work in the community through her appointment to Cabinet in March 2017 in her current role. Since then, she has led the charge on women's equality issues in Western Australia and earlier this year released a comprehensive 10-year plan to address gender inequality. With Western Australia already facing a gender pay gap of 22% compared to 14% nationally, pre-COVID-19 of course, and early data showing the economic impacts of the pandemic to be higher on women than men, we look to face an even greater challenge for equality in this state. We look forward to hearing the Minister discuss her views on how women will be impacted by the pandemic and the longer term impact on our gender divide. I will now turn off my camera to ensure the Minister has your undivided attention. Welcome Minister, look forward to hearing from you. Thanks very much Sally, it's great to be here with you and uh, everyone else. I think there's about 30 participants I can see there on the screen. So um, I didn't have any wine in the office either, we're a little boring and um, are probably more sugar people than wine people in, in our office. I don't know about you. But anyway, I've got a glass of mineral water here to keep me going. Uh, can I first of all start by acknowledging the traditional owners uh, on the land where we meet, even in these unusual, uh, with, in the, with these unusual means. But uh, where I am, it's the Walilup people of the Noongar Nation and pay my very deep respects to their elders past and present. And particularly as we have uh, an international focus, uh, including here in Australia, on the great distance that we still have to go to provide better outcomes for our First Nations people. I think that's an important acknowledgement. Can I also particularly uh, give give recognition to the uh, caring, the strengths and resilience of Aboriginal women, which I see demonstrated uh, every day throughout this state and often go unheralded. Uh, So, yeah, look, it's great to be here. Um, As was said in the introduction, my ministerial responsibilities include women's interests, um, but I also have responsibility for child protection, prevention of family and domestic violence and community services, and I'll certainly be touching on the domestic violence 
issue as as I work through some of the issues that I think um, you you would be interested in. But as Sally said, uh, I think we're starting to see from early data uh, that uh, women have been disproportionately impacted by the economic effects of the pandemic, although I don't need to tell any of you that the data is still emerging uh, and we're really yet to see how this will settle uh, in Australia um, in terms of the long-term or medium and long-term impacts uh, on the labour market as well as different uh, industries. Um, but while there have been um, many observations made, I guess I'll, I'll, make, I'll reinforce some of those. But I, I think the discussion tonight is an opportunity to delve down a little deeper uh, into some of the um, concerning trends that we're seeing arising out of the shutdown and the response to the pandemic. But I also think there's, uh, there are um, reasons to be op uh, op optimistic, but also um, uh, energetically, uh, cautiously energetically um, optimistic, I guess might be the term I would use in that I, I think we should be heartened by uh, the way that in Western Australia, but also as a country, we have responded to the pandemic. Uh, I heard um, on the radio the other day that we have, Australia has ranked fourth in the world in terms of its response to the pandemic, effective responses. And, and we've seen um, for a range of different reasons. First of all, we took good professional scientific advice and we followed it. Um, we have good robust systems of governance. So we had really good communication between the states and the federal government that kicked in very quickly and um, very effectively. We have very good um, social security systems and health systems that we're able to enact and uh, rely on. And so while there's been lots of challenges, we've been able to uh, not only keep so many um, of our vulnerable populations across the country safe from COVID, uh, um, but also um, minimise the economic impacts, unlike other jurisdictions. And one of the reasons uh, I think that um, here in Western Australia, but again also uh, nationally, that this has been appreciated by the public, has been that the public has been able to see in real time what bad decision making and um, and uh, um, uh, lags in effective decision making or taking up advice, the effects that that has had. Um, but it does, I think, give us reason for optimism because if if we're if we're determined enough, if we if we have the right elements of good governance, um, a knowledgeable and engaged community, um, the business sector on board, uh, and the like, we can really achieve great things. And I think, in relation to gender equity, we should continue to be uh, ambitious, um, but also uh, have a line of sight over what are real gains that we need to make. Um, in uh, our strategy to overcome inequity. Uh, so the early data that perhaps many of you have seen is that um, it does look for like for a range of reasons, uh, women are being disproportionately impacted by the economic impacts of the uh, pandemic. And that includes that um, the unemployment figures uh, are higher for women at the moment, it's 8% compared to 6% for men, although I think just this week we started to see some adjustment of some of those figures. So they're going to still be um, 
interesting in terms of, I think that was in relation to the under treasurer's report or some, one of the treasury reports to a Senate committee this week um, federally. Um, but also ABS and ATO data that shows that 14 of 19 sectors in the economy, women are represented, women represented the largest percentage in job losses. Um, and this is due to several factors, including female dominated industries being harder impact, uh, being harder hit by the impacts of the uh, pandemic, and that includes accommodation and food services, for instance. Um, but importantly, uh, also because women are more likely to be in precarious employment, so casual, part-time um, or temporary employment and more easily let go. And so if these trends continue, we're almost certain uh, to see a um, exacerbation of the gender um, gaps in work that we have seen um, so stubbornly uh, entrenched in our current system. And as Sally said in the introduction, Western Australia uh, has the highest gender pay gap in the country at uh, 22, 23%. It has gone down slightly uh, recently. I understood that was uh, because men weren't faring well um, in the labour market, but I did hear some um, reports from uh, Rebecca Casellas from the um, Backwest Curtin Institute. Some of you might be familiar with Rebecca's work. Uh, she was saying that uh, she thinks that some of those improvements are actually structural and they're not seasonal. And uh, so that's heartening, including women's participation in the labour market. And uh, so um, that, that's a good thing, obviously. Uh, not only the comparison of us as a state um, to the having a high gender pay gap compared to the national average of 14%. But what I often find incredibly motivating is that South Australia and Victoria are around 9% in their gender pay gap. And, uh, you know, if they can do it in Victoria and South Australia, we should be able to do it here. Uh, um, so uh, we should be ambitious to get our gender pay gap down, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but clearly we do need to be cautious about um, these early signs and make sure we uh, that we make sure that gender is very much at the forefront of our thinking not just as women and as policymakers but also making sure it is in the mainstream of um, of uh, men who are uh, in decision making um, positions of um, influence decision making um, powers, power um, within companies, within government, uh, and um, within the community sector as well. Um, because um, I think the case is very firmly established now that having diversity at a leadership position and then throughout your organisation is not only um, the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. It will have better outcomes in terms of performance um, uh, on, uh, on many different levels. So um, I think the case for that has been fairly well established. We're also concerned that young women will be especially impacted by the, uh, the economically in relation to the um, pandemic. And that's because they have less experience in the, um, in the uh, workforce. They're more likely to be working part-time or casual. Uh, and also, um, as I said before, they're employed in the industries that have been particularly hard, hard hit by the, um, by the pandemic, and that includes uh, hospitality and, um, uh, and uh, accommodation and the like tourism. 
what many observers have also um, commented on is that, that, that what's frustrating is that we've also at the same time as seeing this negative impacts of the pandemic, we've seen, a, I guess, a, an appreciation or um, some benefits in terms of how we've traditionally viewed women's work or work that has uh, where women dominate uh, in many of the, uh, of the industries, for instance, in the care sector, in the health sector, um, in the retail sector. We found that we were incredibly reliant on all of those areas when, um, when push came to shove and the pandemic really hit. Uh, and that these women, um, female-dominated industries, stepped up um, very much. And, and there's an acknowledgement that um, despite being reliant on many of those industries, we know that they're, they're poorly paid. And, uh, and uh, in my discussions as women's minister, I'm very um, aware that we need to make sure that we keep line of sight. Sometimes the discussion about gender equity can be with the... Uh, top end of town and we talk about leadership and we talk about boards, board level and what's happening with management and what's happening in the corporate sector. But of course, we know that the industries where women dominate um, are um, often a bit less glamorous than that and uh, working in the care sector, in the services sector, um, in the health sector, but in uh, not at leadership level. So we need, really need to keep a good line of sight of where women are working across the economy if we want to make inroads. Can also uh, say something about childcare because as a state minister, I have responsibility not just for um, uh, the portfolio areas I've outlined, but uh, as a state, we regulate childcare. So the federal government pays uh, for the contributions and the subsidies that go into the childcare system. But um, we have an oversight um, role to make sure that there are good standards maintained. And uh, we saw that very early on childcare was very much threatened, the early child, uh, childhood um, education care and, um, and uh, the early childhood se sector, uh, education and care sector, sorry. Um, was very much um, at threat because people couldn't afford to pay their childcare. Uh, they were moving out and having to take their children out, which meant that they could lose their places in childcare. Uh, and of course, the centres uh, were under real threat. And we know that, again, study after study uh, has shown that um, not only affordable childcare, but affordable and proximate childcare is crucial to women's participation in the labour market. So if you started to see centres falling over um, in locations, whether they're in regional centres or in the metropolitan area, that could have a, a very um, significant impact on uh, women's ability to uh, continue to go back into the workforce when their um, jobs were back. Uh, or they had employment opportunities, whether it was their original job or other jobs that they were able to source. So it was really important that we kept childcare up and running. And so there was a lot of discussions between the state and the federal government about that, that um, I participated in. And you'd be familiar that the federal government um, put in place a subsidy uh, on two levels on JobKeeper, it, making JobKeeper available, but also in making sure that the um, 
childcare subsidy was available to centres even at a reduced rate. And that was good. That meant the centres could keep operating, but there have been um, a sting in the tail for that um, model. Uh, that is that uh, not all centres were eligible for JobKeeper. So if you had centres that were uh, run by local governments, for instance, and that is the case around the country, then they weren't eligible. Those centres were not eligible for the JobKeeper component and local governments were already stretched. Uh, in terms of the impact of COVID, so we're not in a position to come and bail out their centres. And secondly, that um, because it, the childcare was free, uh, which was a great thing, uh, but it meant that uh, centres were then at full demand, but they weren't getting their full income. So because of our quality system, we have very strict ratios, and it really did start to put pressure on centres. And it was frustrating because centres were having to turn away families who needed uh, to use that, those centres to, um, uh, to, to work, uh, so the parents could work. Uh, and now we've had an announcement that the free childcare is coming to an end, uh, but that's also going to continue to put pressure on um, centres as we know that the employment impacts of the um, COVID are still yet to play out, uh, particularly after JobKeeper um, is withdrawn uh, down the track. Uh, so that's been another big sector that has been impacted, the number of women work in that sector, but also, uh, as I said, um, proximate and affordable quality, uh, access to quality childcare is crucial to women's participation in the labour market. And unless we can facilitate that, I think we'll always be on the back foot in relation to meaningful um, choices for women in the labour market and in their careers. In their careers. Um, and so while there's been a call from the, uh, across the childcare, um, early childhood uh, sector industry to maintain free, or free childcare or the subsidies, uh, COVID related subsidies, um, and I understand why that's the case. Uh, in my view, a medium and long-term solution has to be a redesign of that system if it's going to be effective. And um, time and again, we see reports saying that um, Childcare at the moment is too too expensive, and it's and it's not available. It's not it's not nearby. It's not convenient, uh, and so that frustrates women's choice. It doesn't have to be women's choice. It should be a family's choice. But we know that women end up um, taking the lion's share of that responsibility, and um, that continues to be a significant policy challenge for us. I think in Australia. Uh, uh, and just finally, the point about um, the effect of COVID, I think, needs to be made about the caring responsibilities that one way or another will fall on women, whether it's our childcare responsibilities in raising children, but also caring for other family members. And um, we've seen through the um, Aged Care Royal Commission, uh, but also in any observations about childcare that we really do demand as a society, as a country, that we have quality care. Uh, but so we need to pay for that. We can't have having affordable and having quality um, can sometimes be a challenge and it really comes back to the public purse. And it means that you need a, a quite a, a, I think a sophisticated policy response in government and a, and a locking in in the um, policy discussion, usually at a federal level to commit to outcomes uh, in relation to both of those areas and, and unlocking that both of those areas, um, I think, will also mean that we can deliver more choice and more freedom for uh, women in their career choices, 
um, but also in their career progression uh, as a country. And in turn, then lock the unlock the potential that we have of 50% of the potential workforce there that at the moment we're not making full use of. Um, Sally mentioned in the introduction that we spent some time developing a 10-year strategy, um, which we've called, I have a copy of this here, Stronger Together, probably comes off uh, back to front, I'm not sure. Stronger Together, WA's plan for gender equity, and that's available on the WA Department of Communities website. Um, but essentially it is a plan for uh, overcoming what we know now is a, is a big challenge for Western Australia, um, that we have a problem with gender equity and or inequity, and that's demonstrated by the significant gender pay gap but also high rates of domestic violence. We have the second highest rates in the country and uh, that's completely unacceptable. And we, we really need to continue to uh, understand how that's, how that's expressing itself, how that's, why that's the case. Um, and uh, and if, if we have, we've got to understand why it's the case and then we've got to be determined to, to develop strategies and to be held to account to implement those strategies if we want to overcome um, that as a state. And as I've said it at the outset, I think we've shown in our response to the pandemic that we are capable of overcoming significant challenges as a state and as a country, but we've got to have a determination. We've got to look at the evidence and we've got to have a discipline around, um, around a strategy, about following a strategy and implementing that strategy. And so a small example, I think, of where um, we've been able to do that is uh, as a state government, we we knew that we were behind on 50% uh, representation to women on boards and committees, government boards and committees. We took a policy to the last election and the Premier then in opposition later, but he said, if I'm Premier, we'll have 50% uh, women on our government boards and committees. And we've gone about implementing that. We've um, we set up a database so that women can log their interest in, or anyone can log their interest in being on a government board on committee or committee called On Board WA. And um, so that's when we were told that there aren't a women available to fill these positions, we were able to point to the fact that hundreds of women have put their, literally hundreds of women have put their information and, and significant professional expertise uh, on the website and made themselves available for certain areas of interest. And um, I'm pleased to say that now we're at 52% women um, in terms of government boards and committees in Western Australia. I, I, there is a footnote to that. There are a series of boards and committees where we're reliant on local government to give us uh, their nominees. We have to exclude them because we don't have power over them. If we include them, we're just under 50%. But in terms of the boards and committees that state cabinet has control over, um, we're at over 50%. And that was because we um, had a goal. We were publicly accountable to that goal. So the Premier was very clear about his ambition and, and knew that if he didn't meet the 50%, that he would be held to account for that. Um, when any boards and committees came to Cabinet, we had a reporting mechanism where we could see the total number of people on those boards and committees and how many women were being proposed and how many men. And uh, we've worked our way through it and ministers continue to send back proposals to their departments saying, I want some women, I want, I want some options here so I can put women onto boards and committees. Uh, it shouldn't, it's really not that hard uh, if there's a will. And I think that element of leadership is crucial. Uh, so I could talk 
for quite a, a while about what I think is the different elements of um, of overcoming some of these strategies. Um, and leadership is definitely one of them. There has to be a commitment at the top levels of an organisation to say we need to change the culture. And um, an example is, for instance, I, I personally am not opposed to quotas or, um, or uh, targets, affirmative action um, strategies that include quotas or uh, um, specific targets that, that need to be held to account. But I think it needs to be owned by an industry or by the organisation if it is imposed externally uh, and not actually adopted by the organisation itself or by the industry, I think you start to see um, you see unintended consequences. And the example is in Norway where there was a mandated 50% um, uh, requirement on their government, on their governing boards and committees across industry that you just started to see a stripping away of senior leadership within organisations to put women onto the board and you didn't really see the the deep cultural change that was needed in in organisations to see um, um, accessing it at a real um, really deeper level uh, overcoming accessing women's talent but also overcoming some of the kind of entrenched views or um, biases that might occur throughout the organisation. As economists, you might be pleased to know that uh, we have a deep commitment to understanding the extent of the problem, the, the, um, the data that underpins really examining what is going on with uh, gender equity or gender inequity. And uh, when federal labour was in power under the uh, Rudd-Gillard years, um, just towards the end, there was a um, legislation put in place which requires private industry uh, who employ over 100 people were, are required now by law to report to WGIA, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. And uh, since that time, since 2012, I'm going to get my dates wrong here, but for, for a number of years now, um, at the end of that government, uh, the, there have been reporting to WGIA of those companies. And we're starting to see a really rich database um, that um, that has come about since so 2012. Thanks. I've, I've got I've got someone. My brain's trust sitting just offside here, being able to fact check uh, my, my claims. But yeah, it was 2012. Um, that since then, Wuji has been collecting some really good data. And if you're interested in gender equity or and as economists. Um, you'll probably uh, relish in some of this information that's there. It's really fantastic, sophisticated data that really gets us to understand what is going on in companies. But what has really frustrated me is that um, the databases only reflect companies that employ own, own over 100 people, private industry. So it does not include this, each state's biggest employer, and that is the state governments, or in fact, the federal government as an employer. So it's, it's madness that states would develop their own databases or um, that you're trying to build up a picture or the federal government would have its own separate database for its own employees, which you should remember would include large organisations like the Defence Force, um, apart from the Australian Public Service. Um, but um, that uh, the, the picture that WG is building does not include public sector employees, and there's a real opportunity to step up our analysis of what's going on in employment in terms of data collection, in terms of employment 
and the trends really start to understand what is happening with some of these very, very stubborn problems um, we see manifest in women's participation or lack of participation in equal terms in, in the labour market. Uh, and so I have written, since I've been Minister, I've written th to three different federal ministers for women's interests. And finally, we did get agreement just recently that um, WA would trial sending our data to AGEA. Um, and so the Department of Community is actually a department that I'm responsible for. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, it employs over 6,000 people. So it's a, it's a good reporting mechanism that'll send to their data to AGEA and see if we can have an exchange of resources, but at least start to send that information through. Um, it's really important that we have a, a good understanding of what's going on with employment at different industries. Uh, so uh, that, that, that is worth knowing. I just thought I'd mention too, um, conscious that I've been talking for a while, I was a bit concerned that I wouldn't be able to fill up the space for half an hour, but I remember as an occupational hazard, as a member of parliament, it's just dead easy for me to fill up a lot of time speaking. But I'm really glad that people are interested in this topic and um, I hope that you've um, had some insight into some of the issues that we need to be aware of as a state, but also as a, a group of professional women that are interested in overcoming gender inequity um, in our state. But just quickly on domestic violence. As I mentioned before, as a state, we have high levels of domestic violence in Western Australia, but as a country, we've got a, a real problem. In fact, around the world, it's um, it has, um, it's it continues to be a significant problem uh, and in fact, one of the challenges with domestic violence is understanding what success looks like because we want incidents of domestic violence to go down, but we want reporting to go up. So understanding the metrics of what success looks like can be quite challenging. We know that domestic violence is, um, is underreported at the moment. Uh, and so in Western Australia, for instance, um, in any one year, in the last couple of years, the figures have been around 48,000 incidents reported to police each year. So if you think about that, it's just under a thousand a week incidents reported to police. And I've been sitting on the state um, emergency committee just um, recently for in relation to COVID. And um, the police commissioner will give reports of what's going on with crime stats. And nearly all the uh, crime statistics in our state, and, I'm, and I know it's the case in other states as well, uh, were either declining or static because people were um, staying in the house because they're, um, uh, they're just the, the shutdowns essentially, there were less drugs getting through uh, state borders and the like. So um, there was significantly less uh, crime. But in fact, the exception to that was in relation to domestic violence had gone up with uh, actual assaults had gone up um, about 10% in the, these are the April figures, March, April figures and um, threats had gone up uh, over 14%. Uh, and so we put in some immediate measures here in Western Australia. We're expediting some law reform that we've put in place to make sure that restraining orders are easier and less traumatic to access that electronic monitoring of um, perpetrators could be a condition of 
bail or um, conditional release for perpetrators, uh, but also um, that there were increased penalties for breaches of restraining orders as, as some examples. Um, but there is so much work for us to do in relation to domestic violence. I'm the first minister in Western Australia that's been dedicated to tackling that issue. Because if you can imagine domestic violence actually covers a whole lot of areas of government effort. Um, the police work, uh, the courts work, uh, child protection traditionally funds women's services like refuges. Um, but we want to stop that violence happening in the first place. So there's a whole lot of um, sort of primary prevention work in schools, but also in, in, in leading public discourse to make sure that we understand that just like we've changed attitudes with smoking or wearing seat belts or littering, we can actually change public perception, public um, opinions about domestic violence. But embedded at the bottom of those opinions is that we need to have respect for women. We need to see women as equal partners in our community and we need to um, not stop until that's the case. We, um, we are seeing now, uh, as I started off in the introduction, talking about the Black Lives Matter, that uh, sort of intolerance and impatience and anger and sorrow by black people in America and Australia and around the world that they are not equal partners in many so many societies and similarly um, in regard to women uh, as frustrating as it is um, we uh, we have come we, we have progressed there's there's no doubt about it uh, outcomes are much much better than they were for me than they were for my mother or grandmother or um, their mothers but we have so far we, we still have a long way to come and so I really uh, welcome the work of uh, women uh, in economics the women in economics network to um, properly understand those issues I know it's not the only issue that you're interested in but making sure that women are encouraged to get into economics to develop those skills and to be um, moving into the um, areas of influence where we can really start to unpick those very, very stubborn problems. So that's enough for me. Um, I'll just take this. It's not gin, uh, it, it's not wine, it's actually just mineral water. But thanks so, uh, so much again for having me here and I look forward to answering any questions. Formally, I'd really like to thank you and I've enjoyed um, you sharing your views and lots of information for us all to think about. So thank you again, Minister, for your time today. This was Economics Supplied On Demand, brought to you by the Economic Society of Australia, encouraging an open discussion on economic affairs of the time. We hope you enjoyed this address from the Honourable Simone McGurk, MLA, Minister for Child Protection, Women's Interests, Prevention of Family and Domestic Violence and Community Services in Western Australia. You can find us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media by searching Economic Society of Australia or using the links on our website at esawa.org.au. If you or your organisation would like to support your local disagreement of economists, like, subscribe and leave us a review of our podcast and then head to our website and become a member. This episode was produced and edited by John White with Erin Stone, President of the WA Branch, as the Executive Producer. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or are interested in talking to us, get in touch via our website. Please note the views expressed are those of the individuals here with us today. They do not reflect the views of the Economic Society of Australia, its members or any associated organisation.